You are listening to the In Focus Church podcast with Pastor Brent Gerard. In Focus Church is a multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Evans, Georgia, with a mission to love God, love people, and reach the world. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you are listening. And follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at InFocus Church. We hope this message encourages you and leaves you feeling challenged to see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, you just sang it. I want to be tried by fire, purified, refiner's fire. Carl and I both said we had that song sung at our wedding, Refiner's Fire, and if we had to do it all over again, there's a side of us that's like, let's choose a different song. <laughs> like, party like it's 1999 or something. It was a beautiful sunny afternoon, and Carla and I were in Pachastrum, South Africa. I know I mentioned that we had gone on a trip there with our kids, and this was, I think, the first time, or maybe it was the second time we'd been, and our kids were with us. I believe my parents were there as well, and we were piggybacking some time with some ministry friends with a mission trip there. And Carla and I had flown in country from Cape Town over to Potchestrom to visit some pastor friends that we had met at pastor school in 2005 in Nashville, Tennessee. They were ministering in that city and that in South Africa. And we were spending the night with them, going to church with them. And then they said, hey, we want to take y'all out to go see some wild animals indigenous to this area. It's a safe environment. You kind of interact. And we're like, yeah, that sounds like fun. I'd love to see whatever, warthogs and cheetahs and, and kudu or whatever it was we were going to see out there and antelope. Uh, but we, we did. We went out there and we uh, walking around and looking at these different animals. And it was, it was really fun and exciting seeing things that I don't normally see in our context, obviously. And, and then all of a sudden, as we're walking around, I like froze in my tracks and the hair on the back of my neck stood up as I heard this roar. And it was a lion. And I don't know if you've ever heard like in the, you know, out in the wild, a lion roar, but listen, if I had not known that that lion was behind like a, an encasement or a cage of some sort, I would have fallen on the ground and cried like a real man <laughs> who was scared to death. Why? Because a healthy fear of something is what keeps us from doing imbecilic actions in life. Sometimes fear is a good thing. I think I've said this before, but it bears repeating in context of this message this morning that probably one of the dumbest phrases that I've ever seen on a t-shirt, and there's a lot of them, <laughs> is no fear. Now, if you have one of those t-shirts, please don't be offended in any way today, but I'm just saying for me personally, you might as well say no intelligence, you know, <laughs> no wisdom. No brains. Or you can say, I have no fear, and then have a little subtitle that says, I have no regard for the consequences of my actions on myself or anybody else for that matter. That's what no fear is. It's also just not true for the most part. I mean, all of us have some kind of fears about something, or we're scared about things. We get startled about things. I mean, have you seen some of the reels out there of people getting scared by somebody just jumping out and doing stuff? I mean, they're hilarious. 
My youngest daughter likes to do that in our house, like just stand behind a corner and jump out at us, right? You know, I'm like, I'm going to accidentally punch you in the face, you know, one of these days because it's just a reaction. Anybody can be startled. Anybody can be afraid. So to say no fear is really not true at all. And sadly, when it comes to fear, we end up fearing things that we shouldn't and not fearing what we should. Like, what about God? Do we fear God or not? Are we supposed to fear God or not? Could it be that we fear what people think more than we fear what God thinks? We do fear a lot of things in this life. We fear being alone. We fear being misunderstood, I think. We fear loss. We fear being meaningless. We fear death. We fear illness. We fear lack. That's why we're unable to give many times. We fear being in a position where we aren't in control. We have a lot of fear in our lives. And yet we somehow like to claim that we have no fear. Fear can wreak havoc on our lives. So when is it a good thing according to the Bible? We're in week three of our series, Chosen Exiles. I love this whole concept of who we are in Christ as Peter is writing to real exiles who've been chosen by God. We're walking through those letters of 1st and 2nd Peter. And before we read our text today, I want to remind you that Peter, in this particular passage of Scripture, in 1st Peter chapter 1, is giving these four commands, these four exhortations to believers who are in exile in the Roman province of Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey, hence chosen exile. They are literally exiles and they are believers. They have given their life to Jesus. They are chosen by God. So the passages that we're looking at this morning were preceded by the word therefore, which we've talked about a few times. When you see the word therefore, you want to know what it is there for. And so what we see in these passages of 13, 14, 15 is therefore starts that saying that everything that precedes this is why we're doing now these commands that Peter is giving us. And that therefore is because of the grace of God. Therefore, as a result of what took place in verses 1 through 12 in 1 Peter, We can say it this way, in light of God's grace or in response to the fact that God has done everything for you when you deserved nothing, to save your life, here's how you're to live. And then verse 13, 14, 15 talks about how we are to live in light of God's grace. So here's verse two. I love this. I've said this each week. You have been, here's the grace of God. By the grace of God, you have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. You have been, what? Drawn through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And you have been bought by the blood of Jesus. All of this because of God's grace. So put your hope in the grace of God that has done this for you. That's powerful. So hear me, our loving Father, here's the order, this is what we have to understand, and I've been praying all week because the fear of God is not an easy thing to teach on, because it's something that is very hard for us to understand. But here's how it starts, our loving Father pours out all this grace upon us because He loves us, before He expects us to obey His commands. See, a lot of times we expect people to obey God's commands without having experienced the grace of God unto salvation. Not possible. That only causes legalism, frustration, and anger towards God. 
I think God is saying here, before I ask you to give me something, I want you to know and believe I have given everything on your behalf first. That's how loving and how awesome God is. As a matter of fact, you can't live according to any of these commands for Christian living that Peter is outlining here apart from the grace of God. Impossible. Cannot be done. Cannot be done by willpower. Cannot be done by morality. So this morning, we're going to look at the third command of the Christian life that Peter is giving to us in 1 Peter chapter 1. Remember, verse 1 through 12 celebrated what God did for us by his grace. Then came the first two commandments that we covered last week. Maybe if you were here or watched online, you remember. What are the first two commandments? He says to set your hope. That's your first command. Because of the grace of God, set your hope where? On the grace of God. So where's your hope today? Wherever you set it last. If you set it in people, that's where your hope is. If you set it on the grace of God, that's where your hope is. That's the first command. The second one he says is live holy lives. Be holy as God is holy. So we're going to set our hope on the grace of God and we're going to be holy in all that we do. So we're exhorted to have hope, be holy. And then verse 17, if you have your Bible today, we're in 1 Peter chapter 1. Today, really our, our only text, maybe a one or two verses afterwards, 18 and 19, but it's 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. That's where we're going to sit for a minute. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. God, I am praying. Holy Spirit, that you will illuminate this, the understanding of the fear of a holy God in a way, God, that we can grasp and live holy lives unto you. So here's the call. There's a call to hope, which is encouraging. That's what we, we talked about last week. We all like hope. Hope's good. Hope in God's grace. So that's easy to teach. Then there's the call to holiness, a little bit harder to teach, but we're, we understand, well, okay, yes, if God's holy, we should be holy. We should live holy lives. We're not going to be perfect, but we should be striving towards looking more like Jesus. And so holiness makes sense. A little harder to teach because there's a lot of jacked up ideas about what holiness is and what holiness isn't, but we understand it. But now the fear of God, that seems incompatible with hope. Like the fear of God. Isn't there a scripture that says that perfect love casts out all fear? Yes, there is. And I'll get to that context in just a moment. But here in this moment, remember, Peter is writing to believers. He's not writing to unbelievers. And I believe that's the first context and the first concept when it comes to the fear of God. I believe the biblical understanding of fear can never be separated from the believer's heart. That's why to explain the fear of God to an unbeliever makes absolutely no sense. You cannot understand and even begin to understand. I mean, I am a believer. I've walked with the Lord a long time. I, I'm, I'm a pastor of a church and trying to understand the fear of God is not an easy concept. So it can never be separated from the believer's heart. The very term to fear God actually throughout the Bible is a statement about who a believer is and who a believer isn't. That's why they were known as what? God fearers. That was an indication, a, a moniker, if you will, that you were a believer. You were a God fearer 
or you are not a God-fearer, which meant you were an unbeliever. That's a start, but then let's just do a very brief survey. And listen, if I were to outline all of the scriptures where we see something about the fear of God in, a, in the way that we're understanding it today, it, it would take forever. There's so many, but I'm just going to give you a brief biblical survey, if you will, of some passages. Psalm 211, serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Not like brain knowledge, but the knowledge of what? The knowledge of God. Proverbs 15-33, the fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom. That's why to have no fear, like no wisdom. No brains. No, the fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom and humility comes before honor. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. 2 Corinthians 7, 1, therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of what? Fear for God. Philippians 2, 12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Acts 9.31, then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, Samaria had peace and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Psalm 134, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. That one kind of stumped me. Like, wait, there's forgiveness so that you may be loved? Doesn't that make more sense? But if you go on in this passage, you'll understand that it is in the context of deep love for God because the psalmist says, I wait on you, Lord. I wait as the watchman waits for the morning. I wait on your unfailing love. I put my hope in your unfailing love. So you see that the fear of the Lord is surrounded by a love for God because there's a difference between a fear of God and being afraid of God. I'm not afraid of God. But there is a fear of God. Those that fear God will not be afraid of God because we know that there's nothing that separates us from his love. I'll say that again. Those that fear God will not be afraid of God because you know that there's nothing that will separate you from the unfailing love of God and the hope that you can put in the grace that God has poured out upon you through his son, Jesus Christ, whom he gave because of his love for you. I mean, I just go on and on and on because of the love of God that surrounds this. So let's get back to that passage a minute ago. Well, I thought, well, there is no fear. Here's what 1 John 4, 19 says. There is no fear where? In love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love, to which we now can systematically conclude that until we are made perfect in love through Jesus Christ, we should probably fear the punishment that comes to those who do not receive Christ as Savior and Lord. That is something to be afraid of. Listen, teaching the fear of God is not culturally embraced. Teaching the fear of God is not even embraced in the church very much. And I get it, because it would be easier just to talk about the hope of God, which I did, and the holiness, because we need to live holy lives. Skip over the fear and go to chapter two. I can do that. 
I mean, I'm, I'm still in chapter one. We're still in verse 14 or 15. We're going to be in this series, I guess, till I'm 40. Oh, no, I'm already in my 50s. Till I'm 65. <laughs> but I've said this before. Our misconceptions or misunderstandings about God do not negate who he is and what he expects of those who call him Lord. He is a loving father. And if our human understanding of something is the biggest hindrance to allowing the Holy Spirit to illuminate the scripture into our hearts and minds, then we just need to ask God for help. And that's what I'm doing today. Holy Spirit, I pray that I'm going to help us illuminate the word of God, your word today in such a way that we understand your word as it relates to the fear of God. Here's the thing. We don't grow and mature by only accepting what we like or comprehend naturally. You're not going to grow in your walk with Jesus Christ. You're not going to mature in your walk with Jesus Christ by only accepting that which you understand naturally or you agree with. So fear God. Let's read the verse again. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. In this translation, and there's a lot of different translations, verse 17 uses reverent fear. Reverent is an attempt to make this more palatable in some ways. A well-intentioned attempt by the writer, if you will, to clarify in this translation, because in the Greek, it's completely different. Just like we have all kinds of different ideas. I'll say this for love. Well, we can say love and we can mean lots of different things. Are you talking about agape love? Are you talking about phileo love? Are we talking about eros love? Like we understand the different types of love, but when it comes to fear, we're like, oh, that's too hard. We must not, let's just love. No, there's different types of fear. And here's the, the, the different type of fear. They're trying to say, well, it's a reverent fear. Well-intentioned because what we're trying to clarify is that the fear of God is not being afraid of God. We're not cringing from God. It's not a servile type fear of God. But problematically, what happens is we begin to dilute the term. And therefore, we don't have holy living because the only way you're going to have holy living is if this is one of the commands too and that we have a fear of God. See, reverential awe, which is great, Sounds like it's something that we're supposed to have in an attitude of worship. Like we just have reverential awe when we're singing songs to God on Sunday morning. Whereas the fear of God has more to do with how we live our lives Sunday through Saturday more than how we sing songs on a Sunday morning in a worship service. Oh, you have no fear of God? Well, I mean, how I worship is one of the ways that I show reverence to God. But the best way that I show reverence to God is how I live my life when I walk out those doors. I love how H.B. Charles Jr. says it. The fear of God is the fear of God. <laughs> That's like, oh, yeah, good, duh. If you know God, there will be things you're afraid to say. There are things you're afraid to do. Places you are afraid to go. It is a holy carefulness toward God rooted in respect and love. I love how he says, if you know God, you'll be afraid of doing things that displease God, not afraid of God. I'm not afraid of God. I'm afraid of doing things that displease him. That's not what the fear of God is, just to be afraid of God. Remember, 1 Peter is writing to chosen exiles about living as Christians in a society where they have no power, they have no vote, they have no rights, they have no real home, they are exiles. The audience Peter is writing to needs hope in order to persevere in their faith in the face of persecution. And do you know how fearing God brings hope? 
because the fear of God cancels out the fear of man. That's how it works. So, get this, Holy Spirit help us, there must be a kind of holy fear that does not destroy strong, confident hope, but exists beside it and deepens it and strengthens it and leads to a life that might look strange to other people, but is a still wonderful, holy life pleasing to God. That's powerful. There's a fear And like I said, there's different Greek words as you're reading through in the New Testament, like delios or delios, it's a fear of people. It's a fear of loss, which causes us to be cowards and to not follow God. That's the bad kind of fear. And then there's the fear of God, phobos, where it gives us the courage to live a life that is holy under the Lord, no matter what anybody else says or thinks. Based on the origin of our hope in verse 15, Which is what? The call of a holy God. That's the origin of our hope. The origin of our hope is what? God's call on our life, not our holiness. The call of God to be holy. And then the nature of our hope, which is what? To be obedient children, no longer living ignorantly like we used to. We used these verses last week. We could juxtapose holy fear against an unholy fear. Let's do it that way. Unholy fear runs away from the judgment on sin and looks for safety in all kinds of excuses and moral and religious camouflage. This is exactly what Adam and Eve did. They ran away from what? The judgment of sin and then tried to hide behind, it was him, it was her, it was that snake, it was everybody but me. And then holy fear runs away from the sin itself and looks for safety in the forgiveness and the empowering grace of God, which is where I have my hope. Unholy fear ignores the price that was paid for our sins and trembles at the judgment of God. Holy fear treasures the price that was paid and trembles at the prospect of insulting the goodness of the one who paid it. This is what the criminal on the cross basically was referring to 2340. Right? You remember when the one criminal said, hey, if you're the Messiah, why don't you save yourself and save us too? The other criminal looks at him and says, what is wrong with you? Do you not fear God? We are all under the same judgment, the same sentence. What is that sentence? The same one we're all under, the sentence of death. We're all under the sentence of death because of sin apart from Christ, which leads well into one of the reasons for this fear of God. And the reason that we have a fear of God is because of the impartial judgment of God on our lives. Peter says, if we go on in this verse, we call on a father who judges each person's work impartially. First of all, I want you to understand that before he's judge, he's father, even in this order. He's father. We call on a father. There's a reminder that the one doing the judging is our father. So we don't just get to call him father. We call on him as father. This is a paternal judgment, not just judgment. This is good to know. He's not a disconnected, uncaring, random judge that has your life in their hands. He's a good father who loves you and has proven his love for you through the sacrifice of his one and only son. And he is the one who's making righteous judgment about our lives. Now, let me just say this as a side note. No matter what your earthly experience has been with a father, please do not let that inform how God relates to you as a good, loving father. Let the way God is designed to, uh, has been, his character is, is seen in the word of God, let that inform where you might have missed out in this life from your earthly father. 
Peter says we call on a father. So the first reason for conducting ourselves in fear is that the one we call heavenly father judges everybody impartially or based on the same kind of evidence, basically. What is that evidence? Well, James says that the evidence of our faith is what? Works. What is evidentiary of your faith is what you do with your life. Faith without works is dead, he says. So what we do with our lives, our works, our deeds, proves what has happened in our hearts. Proves whether it's genuine or fake. So what do your works say about your heart? There won't be different rules for different people. When we get to heaven, there's not different rules for different sections of the world. There's not different rules for different economics in the world. There's not different rules for different ethnicities in the world. There's only one way that all are saved, and that is by grace through faith. By grace, we are saved from the penalty of sin. And by grace, what does that mean? That we're free to live as we please? No, Romans says, well, I have grace. Shouldn't I sin all the more? Heck no. That's my translation. No. If you're saved, you're saved forever. But you will answer to God for how you live your life today. Warren Wearsby calls it family judgment. So in verse 17 says, the father judges each person's work impartially. Impartially means without considering the face. Does that sound anything how... God said, I want you to choose a king for me from all of these brothers and don't just look at the outward appearance. I want you to look at the heart because God doesn't look at the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. So he's saying without considering what it looks like on the outside, without considering the face, impartial, God is looking at our hearts. So that paternal fatherly judge is the one that we're answering to and he sees us. He sees everything that we do, every bit of our lives, Not just our actions, not just the face, but deep down into our hearts. So we're saved by grace through faith alone. And the standard of judgment is how we lived our lives. And that's impartial. If there's only one way to be saved, and there's only one way our lives will be judged as to the genuineness of our faith, whether it's real or fake, then Peter's saying, we should be afraid to live as if God is not real. We should be afraid to live as if our hope and faith were not in God. We should fear not hoping in God. We talked about this some last week. I said many times we feel hopeless because we've misplaced our hope. We put it in an answer to prayer. Our hope is in the answer to this prayer. Nope. Your hope is in the one who will answer the prayer or not. And that he's good. Our hope is in Christ alone. So we understand this, and now we're looking and seeing that if we're hopeless, it's because we've misplaced our hope. We put it in something other than the grace of God in Jesus Christ. For example, we should fear when we are tempted to put our hope in money rather than the God who is our provider. We should fear when earthly pleasures try to replace God as our true satisfaction. We should fear living like God is not the priority and treasure of our lives. We should fear any behaviors that lead to destruction because that's what sin will do. And know this, that there is hope in the grace of God and then choose to live holy lives that are pleasing to our Father. 
And then notice the second half of the sentence says that as you live your life out here on earth as foreigners, strangers, exiles, different translations, this is the second time Peter uses this word exile, which they are, but also that's who we are, chosen exiles. Meaning, Christian exiles, which are like resident aliens, if you will, we are in this world, but we're not of this world. This world is not our home. That's why Philippians says that our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from the, there, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian's value system is different. It's shaped by eternity. It's shaped by God, who's not a president, but a king. God is our king. His laws are not written down on paper. They're written down in our hearts, the Word says, and they fulfill the Word that He's given us in His Word, the Word of God. He is our delight. He orders our steps. He directs our paths. He puts words into our mouths. He gives us words of life, the gospel. That's who we serve. And then Corinthians says, because of that, we're therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Listen, I want you to understand, you have a purpose here, and it's not to hide out and hole up. It is to head out and to show up. Fear makes us hide. The fear of God makes us go no matter what the consequences may be. That's why Peter is writing to people that are on the verge of dying for their faith. Don't be afraid of them. And Jesus said this, don't be afraid of those that could take your body. Be afraid of the one who has control of your soul. See, we're on a mission for the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is to preach freedom to the captives. And at the same time, we're not in this world to stay. We are on a, on a journey on our way home, and our home is in heaven. Life is short, so we don't have a whole lot of time to waste. That's why the fear of God helps us to live holy lives that are pleasing to God. Any day, our work visa will be up, and the Lord will call us home. And to be a good steward of that time of an exile, we have to live in the fear of the Lord. Here it is, to fear God is to refuse to look like the world while still being a friend to those who are of the world. That's what Jesus did. Jesus was a friend of sinners, but he himself never sinned. Let's pick this up on the other side, verse 18. For you know, here's the second reason to conduct our lives with the fear of God. First of all, because God's going to judge impartially. Second of all, for you know that it was not with perishable things that such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the way of life handed down to you from ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Man, this is so powerful. So I want to live with holy fear because... I want to live in such a way that I understand that God is going to judge my life, yes, based on Jesus Christ, but then as James says, because of my love for Jesus, the works that I did in his name, not to get on his good side, but because of my love for him. And then this verse tells us what we were redeemed or ransomed from and what we were redeemed or ransomed with in order that we would live in reverential fear of God. And I'm going to use that word because it helps us best in our context because we're not Greek. I mean, and if you are and you understand that, then this will be great. But this is our English translation. Live out your time as exiles here in reverent fear because you know that your life was paid for not by some temporary perishable currency, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We were ransomed, redeemed from the bondage of sin. And note the way Peter describes it, from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. 
Because what? Sin is just passed down. Peter's Gentile readers would have understood this phrase to refer to the idolatry that they practiced before they trusted Christ. Peter's Jewish readers would have understood this phrase to refer to the traditions they practiced before they trusted Christ. You and I can understand this as anything we used to do and put our hope in before we gave our life to Jesus and he saved us. That is contrary to the word of God. Anything that we put our hope in, now we're saying, yeah, that's what we got passed down to us by our ancestors. One way you could frame the fear of God is to say the fear of God is to hate what God hates. The fear of God is the hatred of sin. And then also I like the fact that we see that these inherited things, he said that you got from your ancestors, the futile ways of your forefathers warns us that as Christians, we're not in bondage to our secondary identities. In Christ, we're not in bondage to our ethnic, national, cultural distinctions because God is going to redeem all of our secondary identities that he has given us through our primary identity, which is saved through the blood of Jesus so that we can be obedient children unto God. Then Peter describes what we're redeemed or ransomed with. And this is what we'll close with today. We're redeemed from our old empty way. We're ransomed from our old empty way of our old life. How? With the precious blood of Christ. Peter's saying in proportion to the preciousness and the permanence of the ransom that you've received, you should conduct yourselves with fear. You'd think it would be the other way around, right? Well, because of the preciousness and the permanence and the ransom and the redemption that Jesus has done and paid on our behalf, then we shouldn't need to fear. And that's true as well. It's both and. It seems that Peter means this. Fear conducting yourself as though the ransom were not paid and not precious. The aim and the purpose and the design of the redemption of Christ's blood, the ransom that was paid in this verse is not forgiveness, but transformation. The goal of this verse is victory and power over sin in your everyday life. Not the forgiveness of guilt, although that's true as well, but not in this particular context. Peter is talking about the transformation of your life to live a holy life. That's what this fear is leading to. The reason Jesus shed his infinitely precious blood was to change how we live as exiles in this life. So when Peter says, conduct yourselves in fear, knowing that you are ransomed or redeemed from bad conduct by the blood of Jesus, he means fear conducting yourself in a way that shows that the blood of Jesus is really not all that precious to you. Or as one expository dictionary says, a wholesome dread of displeasing God. Here's what we can see clearly in this verse. God's purpose in the blood of Jesus is both for our justification and our sanctification. It is for our pardon and our purity. You don't get one without the other. That's why James says faith without works is dead. You don't get pardon without purity. You don't get justification without sanctification if you've truly given your life to Jesus. They are inseparable. God has made you whole so that you can live in holiness. God has made things right between him and you so that you can live righteously before him and with others. 
Therefore, if we're tempted, and we will be, to act as though the preciousness and the permanence of the blood of Jesus has no power in our lives, has no power to hold us back from sin, then we should fear. Because if our lives constantly witness to the powerlessness of the blood of Jesus, then we have not truly put our hope in the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And we do not belong to Him. And if we do not belong to Jesus, then we should be afraid. We have to tie all of this together or it can seem cold or callous. Remember, all of this starts, this whole dialogue starts with the love of Jesus, the love of the Father through Jesus, by grace, and that's what we put our hope in. Now, because of all of that, Christianity is God's grace poured out to us first, and our hope in that grace second. So, hope in the grace of God, and fear not hoping in the grace of God. Fear the behavior that would indicate you don't truly trust in the all-satisfying preciousness of the love of Jesus that's been poured out through His blood. I go back to my first story this morning and hearing that lion roar, just to think about another metaphor of who Jesus is. He's called the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's a lion. He's the lion and the lamb, all at the same time. But I guarantee you, in the wild, there's a difference between how the foe and the family feel when the lion roars. And I can guarantee you this, in the kingdom of God, there's a difference between what the foes of God feel and the family of God feels when the lion of the tribe of Judah roars. For those within the family, the God, the roar of the lion of the tribe of Judah is a fearful thing, but it's full of safety, protection, provision, and love. Church, we need to live with the fear of God. That's the only way that we'll live holy lives unto the Lord with our hope that cannot be taken in the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the In Focus Church podcast with Pastor Brent Gerard. In Focus Church is a multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Evans, Georgia, with a mission to love God, love people, and reach the world. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you are listening, and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at In Focus Church.